Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellished Podcast, a podcast focused on product stories, product storytellers, interesting brand ambassadors, and any other tangent that I happen to come up with. Whether you're a bourbon fan, a geek, a casual observer, someone just floating through this channel, I hope you find it interesting. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. Hopefully, hopefully I can be found on any podcasting platform that exists. If you can't find me on a platform, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com and I'll get that taken care of. I also generally live stream the recording of these episodes on YouTube. You can find any and all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or Twitter with the same handle. I have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com and there's a place to pick up these links, episode details, and more. Today is Thursday, December the 29th, and we are going to be talking about craft whiskey, or rather having a roundtable. A few months ago, Devin from American Mash and Grain reached out to David from Whiskey Ring Podcast and myself about doing an American craft roundtable. Um, we're definitely not ones to shy away from running with someone else's great idea. Uh, so we jumped into it and created a list of people that we thought needed to be a part of that conversation. This will look, this will look and sound a bit different f- from my normal podcast episodes, but the following recording is the result. Hey everyone, welcome to a very special episode. This is going to be co-hosted episode between the Embellished Podcast. It's- hosted by John Hughes, and the Whiskey Ring Podcast, hosted by myself, David Levine. We are going to be doing an end-of-the-year craft whiskey roundtable, and we have a fantastic, what do we call it, crew, cast, group with you today. Panel. And panel, that works too. <laughs> and everyone will have a chance to introduce themselves and join in. So thank you so much for joining us. It's going to be a really fun chat. So John and I were talking just to set the stage for everything and because this is about craft whiskey whatever that may mean but the best way to have people introduce themselves was to say where you're from how you got into craft whiskey or associated with craft whiskey and what your definition of craft whiskey is as of december 29th 2022 so with that um this is gonna be just popcorn style feel free to jump in who wants to be the first guinea pig? I can jump in. You know, I'm always willing to talk. So uh, I'm right. Blake from Sealbox uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. So I, I assume probably a lot warmer than, you know, Nora mentioned snow before we started. And uh, no, so I mean, I take it all the way back, just kind of got into the bourbon world pretty heavy and 2011, 2012-ish and started the Bourboner blog in late 2012, early 2013. And, and from there, just really noticed this trend around 2017, 2018, there was a lot of cool products coming online. And, you know, on the store shelves was not always the best way to tell that message or to get them out to people. So had an opportunity to buy uh, a license out of Washington, D.C., where we currently fulfill out of and just focus on craft. So it's kind of good timing. We're doing a website redesign. So I've been rewriting like all of our, you know, about me and definitions of craft. So when we started, we just took the the ADI version, you know, it's, it's a proof gallon thing. It's no ownership over a certain percentage. And, but when we take a step back, it's like, okay, really what we're trying to do is bring, you know, bring our audience to people that are transparent about what they make or what they blend or what they finish or whatever that is as well as non-heritage. So like with Sealbox, it's great. Buffalo Trace makes an incredible product. If you're looking for a craft bourbon that tastes like Buffalo Trace, 
I'll just save you some time. Just go buy that. But if you're looking for something new, interesting, be just highlighting other aspects like, uh, you, you know, it's, it's really cool to have Nora and Colin on here as well because they're both two brands and distillers that we love to highlight, you, you know. So Colin, what they're doing in New York, we've had just some fantastic products from them between the Empire Rye and different barrel sizes. And then, you know, what Lost Lantern's doing with going to different distilleries and selecting their own casks, that's how we think of craft. So it's it's all transparent, it's all upfront. Um, there's not necessarily a, a you know size or this or that, that gets a little too much in the weeds for us. So um, those are the things we try to focus on. Cool, I can, I can go next <clears throat> just cause uh, I, have, I have such a clear definition of craft that, um, uh, so anyway, I'm Colin Spoolman. I'm the founder and distiller at Kings County Distillery in Brooklyn, New York. Um, originally grew up in Eastern Kentucky, uh, which is, I suppose, to some extent, how I got into whiskey. Because once I moved to New York, everybody would <laughs> assume that I was somehow involved in like bourbon or bootlegging or moonshine or you know all the above. So I decided to embrace it and just become a distiller. And um, but. Uh, certainly was loved the world of Kentucky bourbon and was also sort of disappointed by the world of Kentucky bourbon because it had become so uh, homogenous and commodified and industrialized. So for me, craft is anything that is a whiskey that's distilled in a facility that was operational before 1980. So there you go. There's my definition. So that there's only about 13 distilleries, uh, mostly in Kentucky, some in Tennessee one in Indiana that meet that definition. And so everybody else has opened since 1980 and I consider them to be craft. I guess I can go next. Um, I'm Nora Ganley Roper from Lost Lantern um, Whiskey like mentioned us before. So we, we're not distillers. We buy whiskey from distilleries all over the country um, and either put them out as single casts or blends with full transparency on their origin. And for us, so craft is actually a word that we don't use. If you do a search on our website, um, if it's there, that's a mistake because <laughs> for us, we, we've shied away from the word craft because of the potential kind of bad connotation it has these days. We actually, to Colin's point, we call them new distilleries. So there's a sense that people are doing something new and innovative and trying to understand what whiskey looks like from that specific place, it's not Kentucky, and exploring that regional uh, variation of what bourbon, rye, single malt looks like. And so for for me, when I if I use the word craft, that's what I mean. It's it's digging into what it means to make a spirit in that place. Um, and I guess taking a step back, so my background in whiskey, I worked at Astor Wines and Spirits as sales manager there for a couple of years. Um, actually came in on the wine side, but fell in love with whiskey there um, and got a chance to taste a whole swath of things, but we started Lost Lantern because even there we couldn't get our hands on craft whiskey because it's also, I think one thing I'll add to that is a lot of it is regionally sold. There are some exceptions of places that are nationally sold, but there is more and more of a movement towards places selling in their state and a few states around that. So there's also a sense of place that way as well when it comes to craft. I'll jump in. Uh, I think we're the only two 
two team or two person team on this call. So I'll I'll jump off for American Mashing Grain. Uh, my name is Devin Urshow. Um, I've always been a big fan of whiskey, uh, and uh, but the you know sort of the Pandora's box was opening when my wife and I went to Ireland on a vacation, uh, you know, a ways back. Uh, we accidentally stumbled into the Irish Whiskey Museum while waiting for our tour at Trinity College to start. And um, I mean, that's kind of where I got bit. I, I fell in love with the history um, of Irish whiskey and the process of Irish whiskey and spent the rest of that vacation just trying to drink as much Irish whiskey as I could. And when I got back to uh, America, I was like, all right, I feel like I have somewhat of a good foundation on Irish whiskey, but you know, what's bourbon? What's rye? What's this American single malt thing that is, you know, starting to gain some traction around here? So I really dove deep into it, worked for a couple different craft distilleries, including uh, working at Kings County Distillery with Colin, uh, where I really, I got to cut my teeth and learn a lot while I worked uh, there at Kings County. Uh, I worked both as a tour guide and as the tour and events manager for a short uh, spell. Um, but in 2020, me and my, you know, uh, longtime childhood friend, Chase, who I'll let speak in a second, uh, we launched American Mash and Grain. Uh, you know, the concept of our company is that we want to elevate the profile of American craft whiskey. Um, you know, it's been a really cool movement that's been happening for the last 10, 20, 30 years, wherever you want to kind of put your pin in it as when this movement kind of started. And, uh, you know, we're storytellers at heart. So we really want to tell the stories of the people that are out there, uh, you know, making the change and the innovation experimentation behind uh, what American whiskey is and can be today and in the future. Yeah, I mean, just piggybacking that, my name is Chase Langdon, um, co-founder of American Mashing Grain with Devin. Um, you know, I guess uh, my journey into whiskey really started when we launched the website. Um, Devin was was looking for, for ways to get more ingrained in craft whiskey. COVID had just kicked off and I was stuck at home doing nothing. So I was like, all right, well, let's just launch this website and have been spiraling down the rabbit hole um, uh, ever since, you know, a couple years in this journey, I feel like I finally have maybe some credentials to speak of. Um, but, uh, it, it's been a fantastic world to kind of, kind of get to know, um, and really excited for the conversation. I guess. Yeah. And then we have to chase, we also have to define craft whiskey, uh, which is a really tough, tough thing to define. Uh, I mean, in, I'll piggyback off of what a lot of people have said, which is like, I think transparency is number one. Um, you know, I mean, probably at one point I would have said that, you know, I really want you to be the one milling, mashing, fermenting, distilling, barrel aging those whiskeys. Uh, but I think there's a lot of incredible things that are happening, uh, with independent bottlers and with blending, like with what, uh, you know, Nora and, and, uh, and her partner are doing at Lost Lantern, what Chase and I are trying to do now with American Mash and Grain. Um, so, but what I think is most important is transparency. And I think, you know, it can't come from one of those heritage heritage brands. And I think as long as you're kind of doing something that's unique and cool and is pushing the, the story forward, uh, your crap whiskey in, in my eyes. But Chase, you want to build on that? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, not as succinct as, as Colin's uh, definition. Um, but I, I think for me, it comes down to intentionality. Like, the, the the people in the crafts whiskey space, you know, are not creating a commodity that's not for mass production. It isn't a, a bottom line that they're trying to appeal to. You know, they're out there, you know, intentionally trying to think of, well, what is the regional expression? 
How do they uh, create uh, something new that hasn't been tried before? You know, out there exper experimenting, and, and people who are actually out there, um, you know, as entrepreneurs, as artists and craftspeople, you know, trying to figure out what is something new and uniquely theirs, and going through the process and trying to bring it to life um, is maybe my vague answer for what is craft whiskey. All right, perfect. So I'm going to dovetail off of something that that Nora said a minute ago. Um, and I don't want you to feel like I'm picking on you, but you said you guys intentionally avoid the word craft. Um, and I think there's probably a, a couple of words that that currently carry a really negative connotation within whiskey. And um, I think most of the people on this group are already doing things uh, to try to counteract that. It's craft and blended, right? So blended whiskey and craft whiskey are both, they, they do have that negative connotation. And so um, right now, craft can be, you know, I've heard mention of, you know, intentionality, not mass produced, a whole different um, set of reasons or maybe identifications of craft. Um, should there be a movement not necessarily towards uh, codifying it within TTB or whatever, but um, should, should craft distillers kind of get together and be like, all right, we're going to agree. We're going to operate within these bounds um, to kind of reclaim it, right. To, to, to say, you know, this, this negative connotation within craft is, is not going to exist anymore because we're reclaiming that. And anybody that wants to answer that, feel free to. I mean, I guess, cause you singled me out first. I mean, we don't think so. There are a lot of the distillers that we work with that have already kind of shed the term craft, which is why we don't use it because we like to engage with the distilleries we work with. Um, I also think I mean, craft comes from the come from the craft beer movement, where there was a need to really distance craft beer producers. In in my understanding, that that was very much a like we're not the Budweisers. There's a real distinction where we're the good we're the good guys. These ones are doing things that you've been drinking and they're not as interesting, and we're doing the interesting things. I think the difference in whiskey is Kentucky bourbon is awesome. Twenty dollar Kentucky bourbon is delicious. And by creating that distinction with a, trying to reclaim a term that's already negative, it feels like we're creating a distinction that actually harms craft producers rather than helping. I think that there is a new way of articulating it. I think that there's a way of creating something that feels like it's lifting producers that are doing smaller production, more regionally focused. But I think taking a word that it's a lot of work to take a word that has a negative connotation and try to switch that versus creating something that's just positive. So that's why we've mostly stopped referring to producers as crafts. We call them new, we call them innovative. There are all these other terms that are just positive um, that can help us lift them up. But I'm, I'm interested to hear what, what everyone else says. Um, and I may change my mind based off of this discussion. We'll see. For me, in, admittedly, I don't feel there's a negative connotation to the word craft, and I am coming it from more of the marketing background. But I think having a banner, you know, to to build from or to, to kind of kind of march behind is important. It helps um, very quickly the audience understand maybe what makes it a little bit different. And ban, you know, the word craft is is so big and, and so unwieldy, and it can mean a lot of things. You know, I, I think having, you know, a regional banner or, or you know, th this is what empire rye is, you know, to, to, to nod to Colin or, or, you know, and you get multiple to, to kind of march behind, this is an empire rye thing. That's starting to develop, but, but it is all starting with craft and the, um, the larger umbrella craft. And then people need to find their own frontiers 
um, and their own kind of missions and purpose, you know, finding their own words and their, their own things that, that kind of become more specifically aligned with what they are doing. So it's not just craft whiskey, but it is, you know, maybe it's um, uh, uh, terroir is the thing you want to go kind of, you know, rally behind or, or, or you know, one of the other trends that are going on or American single malt. I think all of that kind of um, can exist, but underneath of the larger banner of, of craft. Yeah, I'll, I'll just weigh in because <clears throat> I think, I also don't think craft is a negative connotation. Maybe if you're the kind of person who has spent time walking into liquor stores and you see a bottle of Blanton's for $150 and that upsets you, you might be the kind of person that for, for whom the word craft has a negative connotation. But that's a pretty arguably small subset of whiskey consumers. And there are a lot of people who have been completely come of age in the last 10 years, you know, who turned 21 in, in 2010, and they have never known a world where there weren't 2000 distilleries in the United States and have never known a world where there haven't been local distilleries. And so, um, you know, in that we use craft as a shorthand for, you know, any of those 2000 small distilleries. Um, but, you know, other words are interesting, too. I mean, artisan is a word that's like very clunky, and like <laughs> is on a Doritos bag. You know, the, all of these words are pretty useless definers. And the one that's most interesting to me is heritage or tradition, which we have been applying to Kentucky distilleries, I would argue, completely unfairly, because mm -hmm. it's not the Kentucky distillers that are making whiskey in a traditional or heritage way. It is... Kings County and Spirits of French Lick and, uh, you know, anybody running up uh, Copper Sea in New York, um, uh, Andalusia in, in Texas, you know, these are people who are running very um, modest pot stills, but doing open fermentation and a lot of different techniques that um, are, are really the way that people used to make whiskey in the 1800s and 1700s and the way that they used to make whiskey in Kentucky in the 1700s and 1800s. And so, you know, the idea that um, that craft is is a negative, I think is, you know, you just, you kind of have to pick apart where that negativity is coming from and what's that negativity about. And ultimately it probably has to do with uh, a little bit of an outdated era in American whiskey when there really was great Kentucky bourbon available at a really reasonable price. And that is still somewhat the case, but not nearly so much as it used to be. Well, yeah, and I and to piggyback off that, I mean, you know, I think the big bigger the bigger benefactor for craft whiskey than codifying a term or something like that, which I think would be a gargantuan task to undertake, because you know, there are so many people out there who are working under this umbrella of craft whiskey to get them all to agree to a certain set of standards and maybe it's also just a little bit at american national grain we're kind of a like no standards kind of place right now but that's, that's like where that's where we feel we succeed is in is in a lack of standardization um you know and i think that's where uh the excitement of american whiskey and craft whiskey or small batch whiskey you know really has has its legs is in open experimentation and innovation. But I think the biggest uh, benefit that craft whiskey will can have and will have is time, right? Because, you know, speaking to Nora's point about craft being something that I carried over from craft beer, which I think is true, uh, you know, really wasn't that difficult 
for craft beer producers to produce something that they could put out on the market quickly that was superior to what the legacy brands were making. That obviously is not the case, like Nora pointed out, like $20, you can buy, you know, Four Roses Yellow Label, and that's a, you know, damn good bourbon. Uh, and I would be happy to have that on my shelf anytime, um, you know, and and the like, uh, you know, all the way up to, you know, $250 for a bottle of Blanton's, which is, you know, outrageous at this point. Um, but, um, you know, craft whiskey producers didn't have that luxury, and it takes a long time uh, for whiskey to mature and to age and for, you know, smaller producers that don't have 100 years of background in how to make whiskey to to make mistakes and to figure things out and to make adjustments. And, uh, you know, I think part of the reason why craft whiskey has started to, to really find its legs in the last, uh, you know, five years or so is that, um, you know, we're starting to see some producers that have been around for 10, 12, 13 years, like Kings, that are putting out uh, products that are starting to, to, to really, you know, be able to compete on a flavor level uh, on a scene, like a quality level, not that there was bad quality before, but we're starting to see the fruits of the labor of all of this trial and error, make a mistake, fix something, you know, go back to sort of old standards or traditions of making whiskey. And we're starting to finally see what those whiskeys can be when they have a little bit extra age behind them, when they have a little bit extra expertise behind them. Um, so I think, you know, that term craft as sort of a negative connotation is something that came from the early iterations of whiskey when when craft was still trying to figure out kind of what they were doing. And so I think time will probably be the best thing for craft whiskey uh, as they, you know, start to get their legs underneath them a little bit more. I would agree with, you know, pretty much all those points. It It is interesting. Um, I think whenever smaller distillers just started, it seemed like you just, like Nora said, you stole the craft beer model. You said, okay, this is how we're different, but it, it was just a completely different thing. You know, we weren't talking, uh, you know, Bud Light. There, There is no Bud Light of bourbon right now. Um, so we didn't have that. But it, it does seem like it helps from a marketing standpoint to have something, but you know, I don't know how you'd get everybody to agree upon a word, but so many words have just been misused or overused or, you know, even handmade, handcrafted makers mark won a, won a lawsuit because they got, they, what I think it was either handmade or handcrafted that they got sued for using. And they won because they're like, no, this is a handmade product. It's like, you know, how do you make, 80,000 a year or a month, however many cases they do by hand. But um, so that's where I think it gets hard. I think it can help just in the consumer's mind. So they just very cut and dry, black and white, see what they're buying and the difference. Um, but to get everybody to agree upon one word or definition, I think that's going to be really tough. Um, the good news is it seems like the big guys are going in reverse. You know, craft whiskey continues to get older. We're getting even more and more bottled and bond releases stuff that's six seven eight years old at seal box and then you see some of the big producers I, I won't name any names but it's like here's our three-year-old in a chardonnay cast I'm like hold on y'all have been doing this since pre-prohibition right like th this is all you could come up with 
Um, so it is very funny to see that happen. And it's great. You know, it's, I think it just gives these smaller producers and bottlers even more of a leg up um, when, when the big guys are doing that type of thing and jacking up prices. And uh, Blake, I want to, I'm going to cut in here with a question that I'm going to throw it back to you and then to the rest of the group, which is that, that question about pricing versus age. And as a couple of people mentioned, there is, there are negative connotations around the term craft deservedly or not. And I think one of the more common complaints has been, well, why am I paying, I don't know, let's say $80 for a two, three, four-year-old whiskey when I can get the Four Roses yellow label at four years for, you know, 17, 18 bucks. Um, in the, certainly in the last year or two, we've seen craft distilleries being able to put out products at either lower prices or at least prices that perhaps are more in line with the age. And I'm curious as from the retailer side, uh, Blake, what trends you're seeing in terms of the kind of pricing as a trend question, uh, particularly as it pertains to the, not only the smaller distilleries and the newer ones, but also, as you mentioned, the heritage brands coming in with a three-year-old or two-year-old bourbon at what I would consider exorbitant pricing. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's the unpopular opinion, but no matter what people always just correlate pricing and quality. Oh, it's a hundred dollars. It must be incredible. It's $200. It must be twice as good. Um, uh, it drives me insane, but at least once or twice a week, we have it where somebody will contact us and say, Hey, I'm looking for this bottle. Sorry, it's sold out. It's a hundred dollar bottle, but we have something that's also from the same source bottled just a different label. I picked the barrel myself. It's very good. It's 50 bucks. And I'll wait for that $100 bottle to come back in stock. <laughs> okay, well, we, we tried. Um, but, you know, and, and that's where I think early on we were trying to explain why some of these other products that we carried were more expensive. There's just, you know, if, if you're using number two dent corn as opposed to some heritage grain and your grain cost is, you know, seven times more the bottle is just going to cost more on the shelf. So uh, early on, I felt like we were having that conversation a lot more. And now it's just, you know, it's, it's a little more on the other side of like, well, no, you can still get all these great products at similar prices, whether it's craft, non-craft, you, you, you know, MGP sourced or, or just from somewhere else. Um, so it, it does seem like that, that pricing thing is always just a sticky point for people. Um, and some use it in a good way and some use it just to, I don't know, maybe the suckers, new suckers born every day type of model, but um, it just, I, I don't think we'll ever stop having that debate, but thankfully that gap seems like it's kind of tightened a little bit over the last couple of years. I'll just say as a producer of whiskeys, it is very appealing that I can always charge more for older whiskey, whether it's better or not. And I think Jack Daniels, I mean, Jack Daniels has just started using age statements because the consumer equates it with quality and they've avoided it for years and years and years. And I know it, they had to, it was over somebody's dead body that they did it, but um, the, we just uh, are, are in a funny time where people invest a lot in, um, in the 
the age statement and the amount of the that the whiskey costs. And so um, it gives us a lot of flexibility to, you know, demarcate this sort of very nice thing and a sort of nice thing and the regular thing, even though we might as a, you know, what we go for as drink, you know, we're having a drink after work. We're not necessarily going to the same stuff that is out there to appeal to the person who wants to demonstrate that they have $200 to spend on a bottle of whiskey. But it's a very helpful strategy to run a business. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one thing to, to layer on there, and, and Devin mentioned it, you know, the thing that's gonna, I think, benefit craft whiskey or whatever we wanna call it the most is just time. You know, since at American Mash and Grain, we're, we're big into telling stories and trying to educate people. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, optimistic right that as people who are kind of newly entering the whiskey space and they're going to these legacy brands and maybe they're not finding the products they want or they're seeing all these sort of different products inevitably they're going to be exposed to more and they're going to learn more things but right now we're so early in that that kind of collective learning curve that i think age and price point are simple enough for people to kind of recognize a tiering system you know a, a high quality low quality or at least um you, you know um you know in the, the the spectrum of like what's maybe better or worse it's, it's a very simple kind of um decision making process and I'm, I'm hopeful that as people start figuring out different kind of blends that they like or different uh grains that they do or don't like or uh barrel finishes and so on and so forth that, that these new elements of decision making process can kind of enrich you know the the, the consumer's ability to i don't know think about whiskey more critically than price and age I'll chime in, I guess, um, on that as well with the, the storytelling aspect that we do at Lost Lantern, because I think we approach it the similar to how you do, Chase. But I think also what we talk about is geographic variation when it comes to age, because I think that's something that doesn't get nearly enough focus, because when you're doing something in a cool climate, it takes longer. So in Scotland, of course, it's going to take 12 years. It's it, versus if you're in a place like Texas or Arizona, warmer climate, what does that do? What does that mean from a time perspective, from an evaporation perspective? We spend a lot of time talking about that. Unclear how many people get it. I mean, we're lucky because we speak primarily to the super nerd. So someone who's going to get super into like, oh yeah, what is the difference in temperature between Northern Texas and Southern Texas? And so we can have those conversations about those. But so for us, we're trying to, to approach it that way, where age is really about maturity and maturity comes in different ways in different places. Um, but so for us, in some ways, we actually don't see demand differences from an age perspective. Um, we see huge amounts of demand going back to Blake's original point. We see most demand driven by the price point. We could have the same bourbon at $70 or $140. You better believe it's going to sell way faster at 140 bucks <laughs> if it's the exact same description. And we've had many, many times where that's the case. And it makes us nuts because we have, say, six single casts sitting next to each other. And we price based off of the underlying components. And every time we discuss if we need to line price because people are missing out on some of the best stuff because that distillery may not spend as much on their grain. They may not be working with a local farmer so they're not paying more and what does that mean from a quality perspective we're still learning what that means from an from an underlying component perspective I mean volume makes a difference all this all of this stuff comes into a price for us at Los Angeles where we're buying mature casks that something can 
the flavor, the age can be really different. And sometimes older stuff is cheaper because they weren't working with a local farmer yet. So like I, I could go on and on about the insane pricing dynamics that we see from consumers, but it's really, really interesting where by and large with some notable exceptions in American single malt, um, the most expensive things sell the fastest every single time, regardless of age. You know, I, th I think everyone has sort of danced around this and it's been something that's interesting. And I'm, I'm going to toss in my two cents on pricing. All right. Um, and, and this is something that I did kind of early on in, in having my podcast was like looking at the inflation of just generic whiskey prices uh, as, as correlated to the United States uh, inflationary tendencies. And I found that whiskey didn't inflate in the same way that it did. And we're, we're playing this like catch up game and in, in pricing now where you're seeing a lot of your what we've used heritage distillers, um, that term uh, for, for you know, mass producers are starting to increase their their bottom line prices that are getting closer to probably what it should have been. And um, craft craft or um, new distillers being smaller, they're going to have that impact earlier. And so they're going to have to increase their prices uh, far ahead of it. But uh, you guys have mentioned a couple of different times, several different people around this idea of regional definitions being a little more interesting. And, you know, I think of Scotland has their five regions. Um, if we're thinking about aging, we're thinking about price, we're thinking about offering, you know, is this a direction that we should be looking towards when we think about small, small distillers uh, in the United States is like, can we regionalize the United States and, and, and maybe not to the granular level level of like empire rye or um, Pennsylvania rye, but like, you know, a quadrant or, you know, divide the country into six places or whatever. Like what are your thoughts there? I mean, I think probably not <laughs> is, is my like, is my easy answer. I, I mean, What's what's funny about the United States is that we have so many different uh, climates and sort of geographical elements within our, even within a single state, right? We, you know, Nora's talking about the difference between Northern Texas and Southern Texas. You know, when we, when we did our article on mammoth uh, distilling up in Michigan, Northern Michigan, they were talking about how they were in like five or six different like topographical zones, which means that they're able to grow, you know, cherries there in the same way that they're able to grow this, you know, historic rose and rye, but the rose and rye has to be grown on an island out in the middle of nowhere. So it doesn't cross, you know, there's so many interesting tiny little nuances within our topography, geography, and uh, even subtle tiny little climate shifts. Um, you know, it's like, I live, I live in Colorado which is pretty dry. And, uh, you know, a lot of the distilleries out here, they have to, they have to, you know, figure out how to add humidity into their aging warehouses, you know, and that's, that's something that's somewhat regional, but it's not something that necessarily Utah or, um, you know, uh, Nevada or any of the other sort of like neighboring things have the exact same kind of interesting issue. So I think that's what will probably make it difficult uh, we've already split our country into 50 tiny little um, things. I think if we tried to do, you know, five or six, um, there's still such a wide variety of um, of unique, you know, terroir or provenance related issues that could um, that could make those styles of whiskey radically different. Yeah, I think there's a, a chicken and an egg dynamic, right? If 
the distilleries themselves wanted to band together and said there was inherent value in having a, a regional style. They could all form fit their whiskey into whatever they agree that that form is and they, they could create it. You know, the other way is like maybe uh, enough distilleries propagate around the country that, you, that the consumer can start pulling out, you know, some similarities or tendencies across them. I, I think that is all, all possible, but what you, what you get right now is uh, even if they are located in a region together, what they are doing might be dramatically different from one another and likely is. These are people experimenting with different equipment and, you know, different grains and different philosophies and different approaches that like, you know, their mission isn't necessarily right now, and I don't expect it to anytime soon, be to develop a regional expression. So like, it might happen if you fast forward long enough in time, just naturally, but um, I don't think see it as something that's, you know, going to come about anytime soon. Yeah, for me, it just kind of speaks to, we're probably, probably focusing on the wrong thing and in general, where I've had plenty of bourbon that it's it's distilled on the same day, put in the same warehouse, literally right next to each other in the warehouse, two different barrels that taste night and day different. So, you, you know, when you talk about trying to divide a massive country and think that we're going to get similar products, yeah, in a way we will. You know, I'd, I'd see this a lot in Florida where distillers will get like Caribbean types of evaporation loss just because it's it's hot and then two days a year it may drop below 50 um and so i think it's just getting people more into what really matters and it's like it's not always the age statement or the price or even the region at times it's it's what grains are they using what what types of uh you know is it is it a column still is it pot still is it um, all these different things is it um you know what type of oak was it air dried was it kiln dried was it 36 months 24 months and and trying to get people onto those things a little more to, to start to figure out the differences and what they like, but um, it, it'll never be a massive thing. So a lot of times I think it's like, ah, let's draw the country into quadrants and we got the Southeast, we got the Northeast, we <laughs> um, would be a lot nicer to do. But uh, at the end of the day, I don't know if that makes the biggest thing um, or, or makes the biggest flavor difference. And, well, and how useful is it for Scotch whiskey? I mean, yeah, exactly. how often exactly. do you be like, well, I only want a lowland scotch, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, go to the bar and order like that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and this might be a, a hot take or uh, probably not, not, not with this group at least, but I think there's a lot of people out there that don't, that believe that those regions of Scotland is much more a marketing ploy than it is actually anything to do with the, you know, with the whiskey that comes out of those inde independent regions, I can see that and that being something that over time starts to cultivate a little bit. You know, we've we've spoken to a, a couple. You know, I I think northern rye is kind of the thing that I'm wrapping my head around. You know, we've got far north who's trying to sort of uh, define the northern style rye, and you've got mammoth up there trying to do a northern style rye. Rye got people out in Wisconsin. I could see over time maybe those distilleries within that general region saying like let's let's band together and try to like create something you know unique to this general region, but I don't think that that will ever get in the way of or stop a lot of the individualistic endeavors um, that those places are doing too, and and we'll still see a lot of really cool creativity coming out of even smaller uh, you know subsets of that regional definition. Yeah, I mean, my last plug again is the the marketing person. There is inherent value in those things, right? Like if you try an Isla Scotch, 
right? And you know you like that brand, but you don't, it, maybe it's unavailable bar. You can find, use that as a reference point to go try something new, right? The, the, the people are kind of just now understanding what American whiskey is beyond Kentucky and Tennessee bourbon. And if there were more defined reference points, Northern Rye, to use that as an example, that might be kind of a, um, a wayfinding option for them to navigate and, and try new distilleries. So there is some value to it. Um, but again, I think difficult to kind of coordinate. So I, I'll have, I guess, what might be a little bit of a hot take. I guess that's my role in this panel. Um, so we actually, we use regional terms, but just from flavor perspective. So we internally at Lost Lantern have something tagged as cool climate rye, where there are three, like there are specific flavor components like white pepper and creaminess that we've only ever found in that specific region. And we're not, I'm never going to pitch that we have an official thing that's cool climate rye, but I think it's helpful when you go into a place where you say, I'm expecting these flavors. And if it's not there, then that's part of what's interesting. Like what choices have they made that worked against something that we would expect? It all goes into our understanding of process. I think there are things that have to do with climate that you can go against from production perspectives. There are also things that you can lean into, like what Whiskey Delbach and Santa Fe Spirits are doing in the Southwest with mesquite smoking, where they're creating a flavor profile that speaks to that place. Other people can do it all over the country, but I think that with a world where there are now almost 3,000 distilleries, having some shorthands for flavors, like when you think of Isla Scotch, beyond the marketing, beyond the way that we sell it and we pitch it to people, having some kind of shared language is really helpful for talking about things and being able to have a conversation where everyone can like kind of meet at a certain place and then talk about why something's not there or why something is leaning into that and what is creating this. And maybe it's because everyone's using the same rye because that's what goes well in those cooler, I, like I don't know enough to know why that flavor comes, but we started using these like, excuse me, shorthands because those are consistent things and we're trying to figure out why and that's the best that we have. I think that that becomes more and more of a necessity as you have more and more distilleries that are at a level where they're doing really exceptional things and doing it like make the productions there and the flavors are existing and you're not like oh this is some weird production thing that they're doing that's different from Kentucky and it's actually a mistake and that's why this flavor is coming up like we are past that in the industry and so now we can start looking at those consistencies and like yeah I'm not saying like, let's call it Northeast Rye, let's call it whatever. It just allows us to have a conversation that is a little bit more concise and comes from a basis of understanding of a certain place's profile. So I want to jump in there just because uh, we've, we've been experiencing some particularly harsh weather here in the U.S. in the last week or so as of recording, and it's affected the entire country. And um, just to center in on Texas as an example, you think Texas, even within the U.S., but especially outside the U.S., and you think, okay, it's going to be hot, it's going to be humid, there's ranches everywhere, and you're going to see horses and cows. But in reality, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth area last week was just as cold as it was here in New York. It was below freezing, you know, snowing, craziness down there. You go down as far as San Antonio and Houston, all right, you're getting a little warmer. But, you know, we're talking about the north half of Texas being climatologically similar to New York, at least for a very temporary period, uh, let alone in, you know, where Mammoth is, where I'm sure they're still digging out. So as perhaps a different regionality, and this has also been kind of around the edges, 
it made me think a bit about uh, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society's way of defining things. So rather than defining by the region, they've got their 12 flavor profiles that kind of cover that. So I think to go with that question, is something like that an option that makes it very easy for a consumer to look at and say, okay, this is the flavor profile that I'm going for rather than, you know, I want something specifically from Empire Rye. I want something that tastes like a peppery rye or like a very caramel forward thing. Um, and the second part of that, that I'll just throw in is as producers, as uh, media people, as sellers, as retailers, um, how does that help the consumer when they're looking through a store online or in person? I know there was a lot, so. I, I can start because we're an, an independent bottler too. And so we've thought about this a lot. I think that you, it depends on who you're trying to sell to because having those kind of flavor components as the primary note, like you, the, you're expecting a level of education from the whiskey drinker. They have to understand, they have to know those 12 things and have experienced them in order to know I like it or I don't like it. Whereas if they've gone to a distillery and they know they like that distillery, in some ways there's a cleaner way to do it. And I think that it's really hard going back to us talking about craft. Having the same understanding of what that flavor even means in whiskey, it's gonna take so long. Like I think that um, you, there's so much common language that's needed for a 12 part um, setup that I think that that would be asking a lot for people to get to a point where we can actually use something like that. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I agree. I, sorry, go ahead, Con. I was just gonna say that that's okay. kind of the, the thing we're talking about here. We're, we're probably talking about a very small group of people that that actually are gonna dive in or care or, and then you've got this larger section, which, um, you know, hopefully is a higher percentage than we think that that may actually care enough to say, oh, I want this style. Um, but the market as a whole is probably going to walk in and and look at it and and just know a few keywords. So that's where you really kind of got to, you know, distill it down, um, pun intended there to to just get a few of those things. And that's where I think that can be handy for people if they may not, you know, nobody needs to be in every Facebook, Twitter, Discord discussion on whiskey to enjoy it. So if we could have a few things, that, that's where I kind of side with that. If we can have a few words that people can pick out and figure out what they like, that that definitely helps. So you're like the four, have a force. Yeah. You know, system just, rather than 12. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, we could, we could split to 12, but I'll forget them my no for sure. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I'll just say I used to work at Estee Lauder in the fragrance department. This is a very like, uh, this is a factoid that does not come out a lot, but um, fragrance and whiskey have a lot in common and they do divide fragrances into four categories. And I will do my best to remember what they are, but one of them is like floral, there's uh, woody, there's something called fresh, which is like sort of citrusy things. And then Oriental, which um, I, don't, I don't think this has been revised in a few years, but um, but anyway, those were the like four categories, and like Chanel Number no. Five is a fresh fragrance, and you know this uh, whatever is a um, something that's like heavy on 
vetiver is you know it, it there was there was a whole taxonomy and nomenclature that was in the fragrance business that is that i think has an absolute corollary in the spirits business and uh you know don livermore has done a little bit with it in canada he's been promoting like the flavor wheel of whiskeys and i you know maybe people will settle on something i doubt it but it could be more useful than what we have now which is just bourbon rye and american single malt which tend not to really describe as much in terms of flavor. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a long road to that. And I think, you know, speaking to what Nora said, like, I think there's an educational gap to it. Um, but I, I think it's possible. Uh, and I think we could even do it now. But what excites me the most about whiskey in general and especially what's happening here in America right now, is that there's so much latitude to, to come through with something new and something different. Um, like we could come up with 12 or four. I think four is definitely much more attainable than 12. Uh, I'm with Blake on that one for sure. Um, uh, hopefully one of them is not, you know, a, a, a semi-racist holdover. Uh, industry, but uh, you know, uh, we could do that, right? We could say, here's your sweeter whiskeys, here's your spicier whiskeys, these are earthy whiskeys, these are fresh. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we could do that. Um, and I think we could, we could successfully lump what is available right now into those categories with some kind of like maybe, you know, skirting the gap in between little Venn diagram overlap situation. Um, we could do that. But what's most exciting to me about whiskey at large and especially domestically here in America is that we have such an opportunity. And I think craft or whatever you want to call it is such a driving force. It's such a beating drum. We have so much opportunity to make a difference and make a change and to do something new and different um, and expose consumers to things that they've ne that are not quite in any of those categories or maybe they're in all of them or you know maybe there's a new one that is to me what is most exciting about the future of what could happen to whiskey is not necessarily fitting it into a box and whether that box be labeling it craft or that box be putting it in one of these flavor wheels uh, or, you know, well, as, as helpful as it is to the consumer to like make it more digestible. What's exciting to me is, is the possibilities. I think you guys have all kind of hit the nail on the head here is that, you know, a, a lot of this conversation that David and I bring forward are coming from very small portion of whiskey consumers. It's the nerds, right? It's the people who have um, identified a negative connotation to craft just because what craft meant five, six, seven years ago um, had a distinct flavor profile that everybody, you know, kind of just sort of shit on on a regular basis. And so um, when I was kind of pushing into the regionality, I work um, in the ag tech space and uh, one of our partners divides the United States into like four growing regions, right? And so if you think about, um, you know, a rye whiskey, anything Kentucky and South, Obviously, they've brought that rye in. They can't grow it. They're not growing it there, and so maybe it's a it's a cost profile. It's a it's a change in flavor. Texas ages a certain way, but um, Texas is a big state, and so there's 
there's a lot of space in there, but I want to go back to something that, that Colin said earlier and just, damn it. I've never thought of this before and it's really, really smart. And so I want to go back to it and kind of open the conversation on it. Um, we have this term heritage brands, right? And, and heritage brands are not distilling in heritage ways. So like if we had to re-identify that, that segment, you know, what, what would you want to call it besides mass producers, right? Because, you know, we're identifying heritage brands just because they've been around forever, but economies of scale have put them to where they're a large factory now, and they're not distilling in um, heritage ways, regardless of whether they've got a pot still sitting in their um, tourism center that you can walk through and see. We know they're not running everything through a pot still. And so is there like a re-identification from the consumer's perspective, we're not talking about, you know, TTB or laws or whatever, but, you know, like how should we shift that mentality? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question, and I often waffle between heritage distillers, which clearly I don't like, and also commercial distillers, which to me, like, surely everybody's trying to be a commercial distiller, you're not trying to lose money, but but there is a difference in the sort of willingness to tolerate a sort of loss on things that I think um, craft distillers sort of embrace. So even on the sort of economic side of it is how I distinguish. So a lot of times on tours, we'll talk about our whiskey versus commercial whiskey, which is a way of saying we're the sort of indie world and that's the pop world where the mainstream, the sort of, um, and so I think from a marketing perspective, let's not even talk about flavor, but that is a little bit how we position our whiskeys for, you know, for better, or for worse, and for lack of some better framing. That's, you know, that's for our part what we do. And Colin, I want to jump in on that too, because uh, actually everyone here has some experience now with kind of a national distribution or a semi-national distribution as well. So speaking directly to Kings County, and then we can go to everyone else too. As you've grown from a brand that's selling in New York, perhaps even just in New York City, and then to New York, and then more nationally, how has the way in which you interact with customers and, and how you attract customers changed over time? Well, there's, yeah, there's regionality and customers too. I mean, there's definitely, <laughs> every time I try and sell, peated bourbon in, in Kentucky, people will pull me aside and say, you know, next time you come leave that stuff at home, you know, or, and, and barrel strength tends to play in, in the South more than it plays in other places. Um, and the West Coast is a very open-minded sort of place. And it's actually like a great place to try whiskeys because I think um, there's a little bit less of a, um, I don't even know what to call it, an East Coast bias, a tradition bias. People are just, there's a, there, there is um, not quite that presumption that if something's a hundred years old, then it must be great. And um, that is, I would certainly say has a, a, a permanence in terms of East, Easter, East Coast thought. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'm, I think, understanding the audience is part of selling whiskey and selling whiskey is part of baking whiskey. So in, in some ways I was talking with um, somebody from Cobol and we both had oat whiskeys that we basically discontinued because the audience, which we thought were super cool whiskeys and we thought, and there is some audience for them, but 
not enough for either of us to really embrace it. So, um, you know, I think understanding what consumers want, unfortunately, is uh, I, Devin was sort of saying this also that like you as a distiller have the opportunity to like push the boundaries of the consumer as to what they will embrace and tolerate. But there's also they push back hard and you can't go too far with that before you have to kind of reverse course and say, oh, you just want barrel strength, single barrel picks. OK, that's what we'll do, you know. Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, kind of me jumping in at that roundtable setup, but Colin and really nor for y'all as well, like how much do you see, hey, this is really fun and cool and exciting and we want to test it out, but then you just realize like, it, okay, it's me and seven other people sprinkled across the country that actually do care about it. I mean, that that's kind of the hard part that we see in Sealbox. It's like, we'd love to take on a whole barrel, but... I'd have to take a third of it myself and then maybe we sell another third. So <laughs> I imagine that's a pretty big thing these days though. It's interesting because for us, it it's, depends on the category. So for us with American single malt in particular, both our fastest selling casts and our slowest selling casts are an American single malt. So that is more about, is it innovative and is it from the right brand that's known for being really innovative? So that is it. There are customers that are looking for specific brands and innovation from them. But if it comes from a land they haven't heard of, that's that's not true. On the other hand, like corn whiskey, we've done one corn whiskey ba a barrel from Iron Root Republic that we thought was going to take like years to sell and it sold out in an hour. So there's also demand for that. Like I think bourbon adjacent whiskeys versus American single malt in some way like it, it, I we see more of a bifurcation between bourbon drinkers and kind of scotch drinkers that are dabbling in American whiskey and how much they're willing to push the boundaries there um that being said we found that to Colin's point California is a great market for the innovative stuff people want to try something new or always looking for something exciting that's less true in New York and really in Texas, which is our third best market, that's only true if it's a Texas whiskey. They love innovative stuff from Texas, but outside of Texas, it's it's less de demanded. So. You know, and, and this is the thing that maybe it's been somewhat out of COVID and somewhat out of um, just everybody sort of, you know, growing up with technology. Um, craft used to be, you know, small distillers used to be limited by geography on sales. And now you've got, you know, Colin, who's able to talk about selling in California um, because, you know, there's online sales or whatever, um, but you're not carrying the volumes that commercial whiskey makers are carrying. Um, I, and, and, you know, even, even for, for Devin and Chase, you guys are, are launching your, your blend that you've created and then you're trying to sell it all over the United States. Like, how do you build a fan base when you're trying to sell to everyone in the United States at the same time and you don't have tens of thousands of proof gallons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, or, oh, sorry, go, Devin. <laughs> I'll, I'll start off just because we're, we're pretty unique. And then Colin can maybe speak to it in, in a, you know, in a, uh, a larger sense, because he's got, you know, lots of products and, Stuff. You know, we only have one product on the market right now, uh, which is Borrowed Page Volume 1. It's a very different product, uh, right? It's a blend of four different styles of whiskey. It's got two different bourbons, one column distilled, one pot distilled, 
It's got a Pittsburgh rye whiskey in there, and it's got a mesquite smoke single malt from Whiskey Del Bach, like Nora mentioned before. Uh, you know, a lot of what American Russian Grain is trying to do is is we're I think we're sort of we're playing on two different fields. We think they're pretty close to each other, but like I said, elevate the profile of American of of American craft whiskey. You can go on the website. You'll read really long, de- you know, in-depth, holistic articles about craft distilleries across the country, and really learn the who, the what, the why, the how of how these whiskeys came to be. And then the page is really about um, trying to be a part of that step forward. So it's a pretty unique whiskey. Um, it's unlike, you know, what most people out there have probably tasted before, and and we are trying to sell it as to as many people as we can. You know, we're only sold on our website. We're available in 40 states across the country. Um, and we're brand new. And we need 724 bottles of it. So uh, it's, a, it's a big challenge. Uh, I think probably similar to what my answer was before is that for, for people who are doing something like what Chase and I are doing, is it's going to take time, right? It's going to take people tasting the whiskey, it's going to take people embracing the concept of what we're trying to do. Um, and we're pretty small and we're pretty niche. So we're, we're okay to sort of live in, in that world for right now. But I think it's it's going to take time. It's going to pe- take people coming around to the idea of wanting to try something, um, wanting to try something new, wanting to try something different and wanting to embrace this concept of the fact that American whiskey can be really different from what we've had before. Uh, but I don't know what's going to help us besides maybe better marketing strategy and uh, and time. Yeah, just to, to piggyback, right? I, I think actually for us, and we're, we're exclusively online um, and, and just on our own website, right? So we're not even on on other um, major retail sites. It, it's about community building, right? And I actually think that's probably a, a, a parallel between a, a, a new distillery out there somewhere. It's, they need to build their community of, of supporters and evangelicals who are, you know, the, the people that are willing to try it first and then, you know, word of mouth. Um, for us, our community, since we don't have a, a location, a local or a backyard that we can kind of draw from and, and, and make that point of reference, it's it's the storytelling. It's finding, you know, the, the other whiskey nerds in the world and, and kind of getting behind this deep learning around the distilleries. And so that we have our, our central community that we're trying to build on American mash and grain. But, you know, the, the beauty of us is what we're blending from other uh, established craft um, producers in the country is we have all of their communities to draw from. We're doing a, a, a big concept behind Borrowed Page was trying to cross pollinate um, those communities. So like, you know, people who are, are in um, Arizona who, who know and love Whiskey Delback might've tried whiskle, uh, Wiggle Whiskey or heard of Wiggle Whiskey for the first time uh, through that blend. And, and we actually get to go be a part of their communities. And so it's, it's a lot about establishing our own and then working within the bounds of kind of the pre-existing communities and, and, and kind of creating some synergies across the country that way. Um, but it's a grind, it is definitely a grind. Yeah, I was I'm just going to answer the question by saying, you know, if you want to launch a fashion brand, it makes sense to cultivate customers in New York. If you want to launch a whiskey company, uh, I have always believed that it makes sense to cultivate customers in Kentucky, being that Kentucky is the epicenter of American whiskey. And so I have wasted a lot of money and time going to Kentucky, even though we had no distribution, even though we had no mechanism to sell the product to people, but just to talk about what we're doing and and to invest in building relationships there, knowing that um, 
you know, sort of in contrast to everything that flows out of New York City, it kind of bourbon is the one beautiful thing that flows out of Kentucky. And so to be able to really um, speak to that audience at a high level was always very important to me. And, you know, I, I think it has paid off in a certain sense for us. Um, but, you know, I think that strategy is a, is a very different one than most consumer products. I mean, most consumer products are branded on novelty and uh, newness and differentness and whiskey, <laughs> you sort of want to be. Uh, we're the least new, we're the least old, we're the, we're the most traditional, even more traditional than the traditional, you know, like it's, it's, a, it's sort of opposite day at the branding school. And so um, geographically, we've approached it that way too. And have you have you found your foothold in Kentucky now? I mean, we send a, a pallet to Kentucky twice a year. I mean, it's not it's not that the product volume is important there. It's just the the right placements and having a few advocates um, to me is more important. Just like even taking over New York City is not that important to us. It's having the right being in the right accounts where the right people want to talk about us. That is very important too. So. Um, in terms of which community are you speaking to, um, you know, that's a, that's a big component of soliciting that audience. But, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what we have done in Kentucky. It is, you know, not, not monumental by any means. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of credit there, Colin, because I'm in the far Western reaches of the state, the, the part that everyone always forgets exists. And there's two bottles of Kings County sitting on my shelf here. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and they've been sent to me from people from other States because that's how I had to get them. And so sure. it is working. Right. Yeah. Good. I just thought of this question. This is perhaps a, a, uh, another marketing question. So Nora, you mentioned, for example, that single malt is both your lowest and highest selling barrels. Um, uh, Colin noted about different areas as well, and uh, you know everyone's spoken to that in a different way. So, as producers and and retailers, do you think about in your marketing materials, you know, changing the language, like literally changing the language on the labels or on the sticker sheets, the sell sheets for these regions, um, and especially when you know, like Blake, you've got an online store and Nora, both of you have an online store that serves nationally, you know, can you target audiences in that way? It's an interesting idea. I mean, from my perspective, I'm not touching my labels because it's the TTV will make like I don't want to mess with that because for all we know it'll mess up all of our labels by submitting something with different language I do think it's an interesting idea for sell sheets we're we work with Blake um and then we have our website and so for us we don't know where someone's consuming things right now so we do our best like we're speaking to nerds so we give them as much information as they want and it's like self-serve kind of thing um and that's that's who we why we work with Blake because the type of people that he speaks to will be excited about that level of information I think 
as we start selling into, we're, we're actually hiring a salesperson in California right now. Um, and that'll, that's going to be interesting to see how much tailoring we do specifically for the California market relative to how we talk about things online. And it is, it is something we've talked, we've thought about from a sell sheet perspective, but haven't actually pulled the trigger on anything at this point. Something might, you know, that might be interesting is if you do adapt sales collateral or, or messaging, is geography the underlying thing to orient it around? Or is it, you know, experience in whiskey? Are you a traditional whiskey drinker? Um, are you new to whiskey and don't know anything? Are you the whiskey nerd? I, I, there might be more fruitful ways or more productive ways rather to um, adapt your sales language that isn't exclusively about Kentucky versus California and so on. Just a random thought. We, we did just change the language on our sales sheets, so I'll just say, but but because we had, uh, we internally call a number of different whiskeys that we make unaged whiskeys, and it was pointed out that we should maybe call them flavored whiskeys because that is a pretty active market, and we make a sophisticated flavored whiskey, but um, because I'm such a production person, a lot of the language around things, or like we have allocated whiskeys, which everybody in the industry knows, but the regular customer doesn't know that an allocated whiskey is a limited whiskey. So, you know, sometimes when you're a small company, which we all are, you know, just our own sort of behind the scenes often gets in the way of the messaging that we're trying to do. So, um, you know, sometimes it is worth stepping back and saying, let's, let's look at this from the point of view of an actual consumer or a retailer as opposed to what <laughs> looking at it from a distiller. So that has been a big difference for us. So Nora touched on something and I'm gonna ask, I'm not asking just for Nora this time, I promise. Um, every one of you have had to put you know, any number um, at least one or more labels through TTB uh, as a as an NDP independent bottler or a small distiller, um, and and I find myself on a regular basis looking at some of the labels that come from major uh, brands, large distillers, and wondering like how the hell did that get through TTB? Uh, do you think there's a higher degree? And this feel free to not answer this, but do you think there's a higher degree of scrutiny on smaller producer producers labels going through TTB than your, you know, Jim Beams and, and Maker's Marks and Knob Creeks of the world? I don't think so. I mean, I will never, I, my, my line is no. I mean, because you see so much variation between, we put it, we do mostly single cast. So I'm doing a lot of labels and we see a lot of variation in what gets approved. We've had things get approved for the wrong category and I have to call it back because we won't ever have something approved in the wrong category. Like there are a lot of places that will just go, if it's approved, it's approved and you move on. And I think as companies get bigger, if so, like you pro it probably just goes through a process. Like there are a lot of things that are just not approved correctly, be it bottled and bond, not at a hundred proof. Like it's, I think that there's just a, such a swath of incorrect labels out there because the TTB is going through an insane number of labels and things change so much. And like, it's a crazy process. Um, but I think it's just, there's in some ways we notice it more because it's a big brand and they should know better rather than the smaller brands where maybe someone wouldn't have known that that's actually not 
it should be labeled as malt whiskey versus whiskey, like whatever it is. I think that we all kind of look at it and we're like, come on, man, you are your Jack Daniels. You should know, like this shouldn't have even made it past your QC kind of thing. So in some ways, my hypothesis is it's the same person looking at it and they, and like half of the time, they're not even paying attention to what brand it is. I had somebody tell me a funny story on that one. They said whenever they had like a tricky, tricky label, they'd submit it eight times on the same day and would hope to get eight different agents and like four would reject, three would have questions and one would approve it. And they're like, oh, thank you. Here we go. We've got our approval. We're done. (laughs) I don't know how true it was, but it it seems accurate if you've worked with the TTB. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Nora. I think it's it's really just the, the TTB is overwhelmed. And ultimately, it is consumer consumers who galvanized against somebody. I mean, our, our friends at Whistlepig came out with a 100.01 or 0.05 bonded, not bonded whiskey or something, which was, you know, TTB never should have approved because it's it's trading on bottled and bond uh, and, and isn't. And, you know, I think there were a group of consumers who said that who called foul and said this is really kind of <laughs> stupid and it, that's what it takes and ultimately the the best thing i can say about that is when in the very early days of this whiskey boom when there were a lot of people who were not putting the state of distillation on the label there were a, a very serious group of consumers who came together who, to demand it and the industry had to follow suit and it and every, everybody is better for it so I would just say, in terms of label accuracy, the the consumer has more power than anybody else, certainly than TTB. And so <laughs> perhaps the Irish Whiskey Association as well. But um, you know, it it is what it does fall on people to hold their distillers accountable to what they feel is, you know, the best interpretation of the law. Colin, I just want to jump in because I was thinking about the IWA at that. Um, and I just had James Doherty on, who is becoming the head of the IWA. So uh, have we had any more salvos in that conflict since the Little oh, Republic? Oh, there's, there's a treaty with proposed language um, that I have, have not yet signed. But um, one way or another, I think we have come to a, a, a healthy conclusion there because I think their grievance ultimately was that it was you know, unclear. So we've created clarity for people. I don't know that I agree it was unclear in the way that they said, but um, nonetheless, the solution may be the same. So, you know, I mean, I I think, you know, going back to what TTB, you could be a troll about these things and you could get something past TTB that would infuriate the Irish Whiskey Association and be totally compliant and totally legal and totally, you know, uh, even above board as far as the Irish Whiskey Association is concerned. But ultimately, you know, our goal as a distillery is not to troll people with products, but to make whiskey and good whiskey. And so um, I think we will end up on the side of compromise as opposed to agitation in that particular dispute. <laughs> Trolling's a fun byproduct, though. It definitely is good for my Twitter feed to watch that going on. To <laughs> Right, right. I mean, well, that's also true. I mean, we live in an in a in an age where um, sometimes the conversation around a product is maybe more important than the sales of that particular product. And and you know, there's a number. I mean, any forty year old Scotch can say the same. Nobody's buying that whiskey, but 
a lot of people are talking about it online. So. And with that, I wanted to move into kind of our, uh, our last section before we let everyone, we want to make sure we have time at the end for everyone to, you know, really plug what they do, talk about their product a little bit more, but uh, looking forward to the trends, you know, we're, we're at a point where we're coming out kind of, of first three years of COVID. Uh, and we've seen any number of trends go through the American whiskey scene. So what are you all seeing from your purchase in, and this could be craft, American, heritage, whatever you want it to be. What are you seeing as trends going into this coming year? Well, I'll say something I'm really excited about is whenever the TTB, not that this has become like a TTB <laughs> crashing party, but like whenever the TTB does come around to codifying any kind of standards for American single malt, uh, I think the, you know, the common period has been over for a beat now. So whenever that happens, I'm excited to see what happens with American single malt. Um, I'm excited to see, you know, the successes that people who have been championing it for a really long time, how they can, you know, continue to sort of draft off of, of, of a standardization. But I'm also excited to see what kind of experimentation and innovation can happen within those standards now that those standards are officially codified. So I'm excited to see what comes out of American single malt once it becomes a standardized category. Um, and then, you know, something that I think is is in its early stages and, and you know, I think Lost Lantern is doing this. We're trying to do this at American National Grain is, um, is blending, blended whiskey. Uh, and I know uh, Kings County just released the blended bourbon which is really exciting too. I think, um, you know, we, we've, we've been living in sort of the cask finish trend for a long time. And I think that this blended whiskey uh, trend not only is something that uh, I think could stick around for a little while, but I mean, it's basically what, you know, we're all about, which is trying to see what kind of new, unique flavor profiles, aroma profiles can be created uh, when you when you blend multiple styles together, um, so I'm really excited about the the blended whiskey trend. I think that's going to be the next the next big thing coming through the craft movement. I love that. I'm all, I'm here for it. I'm not sure it's going to be next year. I would love it to be next year. Let's make it next year. But I think for to your point about finished whiskeys, for us, what we're excited about next year is we're starting to see a swath of barrels that are in corn whiskey or single malt, it's full age in a used cask, because that's something that is a scotch tradition. And you don't see it that much here because bourbon, that's not going to happen. Um, but it's something that allows totally different flavors um, in that, that a finish, because finish can often be so big, but if it's like a second or third use of a used cask, it like in Scotland, you can get some insane flavors. And I'm really excited for what that can add to the conversation. Cause I like, we do a lot of finishes at Lost Lantern, but I'm kind of like, how, what else is there going to be? I feel like Blake topped it this year 
I think with you did the you did the it was what what was the what was your latest steel box that you did Tri- triple second champagne finished bourbon yeah. it's a recreation of the cocktail you know yeah. it's a cocktail in the bottle and it's delicious <laughs> but I feel like how does anyone top that at this point I think some like call I, it jumping the shark some call it topping <laughs> whatever <laughs> I mean however you want to define it I feel like we're getting to this point where things start just getting muddy from a flavor perspective and and we and we lose it and we move on and I I feel like this past year there have been some amazing things but I but to me I'm like all right let's go to to no finish or use fully um use cooperage that not just like neutral oak but something we had this insane cast that was single malt from Balcones that was aged entirely in a tequila cask and like it I've never tasted a whiskey that tastes like that like that's a way to continue pushing flavors and also use them in blends um that that American whiskey there's a there's room to run there in a way that I don't see in other places in American whiskey right now yeah I could just say uh I I think blends well there's three different blends that I think are going to be meaningful there's blended whiskey there's blended bourbon and there's a blend of straight whiskeys all of which have slightly different meaning in the U.S., but um, but all will be, um, I think, super relevant and interesting. I also think people may be gravitating to a lighter flavor profile on American whiskey after we've been doing, I mean, where do you go after Garrison Brothers Cowboy bourbon? You know, like you're at the end of flavor. You're at the event horizon of char and in the whiskey, you cannot see through the glass of whiskey. So you have to, you have to move, you have to turn back and go back towards lighter whiskey. And that's historically, this cycle has happened several times in American whiskey where people go to the really heavily oaked flavor profile and then they come back towards a lighter, uh, what, you know, Canadian style whiskey in the eighties um, towards, you know. Um, so I, I think that could be a part of the blended whiskey phenomenon that's happening. I will just say American single malt um, is a is a tough category. I mean, we make an American single malt. It's not very popular. Um, and I think there's a lot of competition in the malt whiskey space internationally. Um, so I think there's a, but American whiskey, American single malt whiskey does taste different than Scotch single malt whiskey and Irish malt whiskey. So, um, as that finds its footing in terms of a of, of flavor that people can latch on to and trust, um, there's some room there. Um, but, and let me also say, you know, barrel strength whiskeys are not going away and people are now chasing like really high proof barrel strength whiskeys, <laughs> which is a, a fun thing that I tend to have fun with and I think other people do too so I'm just gonna throw and say hyperf whiskeys like hazmat whiskeys you're um, like the ultra hazmat uh, yeah we have some <laughs> we have some hazmat whiskeys and and it, it, it goes back to that sort of like how do whiskeys behave differently as they age in different climates I mean our situation is a climate-based one so um but I also just I kind of have a little I, I personally like hyperf barrel strength whiskeys and I think there's other people out there that do too. So um, that will continue to be a thing if if we can manage it in such a way that people aren't making it for the sake of making it. And it's really still what it is now, which is just occasionally you have great whiskeys that happen to be high proof. But the same is true with age statements. You know, I mean, 
most people, when they release an age dated whiskey, they back it up with it being a good whiskey, but there is always the age dated whiskey that isn't, you know, particularly noteworthy. And, you know, that's, that's what sort of can be a, a brand killer, I guess, if you've, if you've had something that you expect to be good because of a, a data point I, and it, and it, yeah, disappoints. I will say that that six-year-old Blender's Reserve that Kings released, God, is it, was it last year or two years? Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm starting to date myself here a little bit, but that was at 70%. That was 140 proof. <laughs> I love, that is honestly one of my favorite whiskeys of all time, of anywhere ever. And I'm, I'm just saying because I worked at Kings at the time because I literally had nothing to do with it. But um, so good. I still have a little bit left in my bottle. Not only is it high proof and super flavorful, but I had a scratchy throat the other day. Had a glass of that. Cold was gone the next day. I'm just saying. And I am yeah. reading a book right now about you know alcohol and, and how it's been used in medicinal ways throughout history. But you know, there's a special, there's some special whiskey coming out of Kings County with that high proof stuff. So don't be afraid of it. Yeah. Devin, you're gonna have the FDA after us now because you're making medical claims on whiskey uh, on this podcast. Just just be aware of that. Yeah. And, and so don't, you go ahead. don't don't use whiskey as medicine. But my cold did go away, I and mean, that's literally I'm just saying that's all I'm saying. I'm not I'm not supporting the idea of whiskey as medicine. And I don't have a cold right now. And do you not have a cold or you just can't feel the cold because you're still drinking through the episode? Um, <laughs> anyway, so well, I'm, well, I'm glad yeah, you're talking, yeah. right? Because because you're the target of the of the final question that I have. You specifically right, are. Right. And then uh, to a degree, Colin, because of something that you said in there, um, you know, whenever you were uh, on, you, when you and Chase joined me um, two, three, four, five months, however long ago it was, um, we were talking about American single malt. You brought it up again here. Um, at that point, you said you what disagreed with the standard of identity. Um, and you didn't tell me why. And I said, yeah, you need to come back on. We'll talk about that. And some of the flaws of the time travel theory in back of the future, we were going to kind of have that. And then that never kind of panned out. And then, um, Colin, you sort of hedged on it and saying, you know, there's a lot of competition in the space. Um, what was for, for Devin, what was your reason for wanting to maybe disagree with that standard? And for Colin, is there something we could do with the American single malt standard to make it to where we would be more competitive instead of being the exact same thing that's on the international market? And so either one of you guys can, can hop in first. Well, and I want to give the other people on the call the opportunity to answer the previous question about what they're excited about for 2023, but I, I'll, I'll take the bait, John. Um, yeah. I mean, again, I, Part of the, re the main reason why American Mash and Grain will only release American whiskey, which is this sort of vague catch-all term for anything that doesn't match one of the sort of standardized, you know, things, is that, uh, you know, I, 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 standards can be super helpful. Having something be officially standardized can help from a marketing standpoint. Can help from a consumer understanding standpoint, educational standpoint. And I want to come out right at the beginning, as I always do, and say that I think that the work that the American Single Malt Commission has done to bring these facilities together, to put these standards together, to get it through the TTB, to get it to a point where it's about to be uh, standardized, hopefully, is incredible. It has my full support, and I'm really excited for them. 
like not, none of my personal ideas or beliefs stand in the way that like this is an incredible moment in American whiskey history, and I'm really happy for the people who have put this together. Um, yeah, I mean, are there certain things that I wish could have been a little bit different? Whether that be you know the you know setting it at 160 proof like bourbon and rye are, where there's a long history and tradition of single malt whiskeys being distilled at a higher proof. Um, and there are some people within the country who distill American single malt right now as it is unstandardized at a higher proof that I am concerned about what they're going to do once these standards come out and how it's going to affect their product and what they're able to call it and what they're able to market it as and how they're going to move forward. There's that. I mean, there's part of me that when I understand that malt as a world concept is understood as malted barley, the opportunity that there could have been for American single malt to have been made with American, you know, grain, you know, native grains like corn or rye or wheat or something like that, 100% rye malted whiskey being considered an American single malt made from 100% of malted grain from America that made it something completely different from what Ireland or Scotland does. Again, that's there's a duality in me where I'm torn between that's super cool and unique and we could be different than everything else. And if the rest of the world considers single malt to be barley and we're the only outlier, then we're just like a kid kicking in the sand, you know, kicking in the sand. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about American single malt, what it could have been, what it can be. At the end of the day, I'm really excited for uh, standardization and for the single malt commission and everything that's going on. And, and I'm really hopeful that we can see a lot of really cool innovation and experimentation come out with that standardization um, in a way that'll make me really excited. And so, second, like Chase and Blake, want to give you a shot to say what uh, you know your trends are, what you're seeing for the upcoming year. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's not that I feel like we keep comparing it, comparing it to beer, but you know, for a while there, you go to a brewery and it's like, <clears throat> all right, this is our 400 IBU ultra hopped uh, IPA or you know banana nutmeg stout that's. 14% or something. And now you go and it's like, Hey, here's our new craft lager. I'm like, well, y'all just made Bud Light is, is really all you did. <laughs> it's like a slightly better Bud Light. So I, I think we're still in a little bit of that exploratory phase with bourbon and whiskey in general of like, what can we finish it in? You know, all these different things, but I think we'll eventually hit where people are saturated by those, but there'll always be, it, it's like the market just keeps getting segmented and segmented and segmented where you'll have a group that always chases high proof. You have a group that always chases age, a group that always chases something new. And we see that all the time. I mean, even with our private barrels, it's like we do a couple and we're like, wow, that sold out really quick. Let's get another one in. And then we go to do it again. And it's like crickets, you know, like, Oh, never mind. Maybe they don't want that. They just want the new and, whatever's next. So um, I think we'll still see people moving into whatever is the next thing. And for me, that's just stuff coming out of these distilleries that compares an age and quality as the heritage brands or, you know, the Kentucky bourbon. Um, 
even with like Bardstown Bourbon Company, they're getting ready to release the Origin series, which is six plus years <laughs> old. Um, you've got New Rift, which is getting up there in age, just Chattanooga, same with them. A lot of these brands are doing that. And I think that's going to be the biggest trend we see where it's it's a much like like the playing field is just very even in level. I, I mean, I think about the private barrel we did with with Colin, where it was, I think it was seven years old, six or seven years old and 150 proof. Um and I think it was gone in 30 seconds and we put it in 375s just to try to, you know, expand it out. Like you just can't get that anywhere else. So I think that's, what's going to keep growing and keep people engaged and excited. Um, at least kind of the audience that we service from Sealbox. You know, being the last person to get on here and make a prediction, there's not a whole lot of room left to, to, to guess in. So, so I'm, I'm going to give you my political answer and say, after the last couple of years of life, I'm done making predictions. I'm not going to look into crystal ball because every time I do, the world has a way of going the complete opposite direction. Uh, so uh, I, I too am optimistic. I'm very hopeful in the blend front for my own sake. It's a biased uh, prediction. I'll go. I'll go with blending. But um, yeah, that's it. I thought of one other that I'll throw in there that's different. Um, We've been really excited to see the rise of some farm distilleries that are starting to do some really, really cool stuff. I think Frey Ranch is probably the the most widely known, although still available in Nevada and and California only. But like I, beyond that, just places that are that are able to really play with grain in a new way. I think that they'll help push the boundaries of what flavor is and and also help make whiskey sustainable in the long term finding grains that will grow well in specific places like that I think that's super important as we all grow and and hopefully become larger in the industry as all these distilleries grow we need to make sure that there's grain that's going to continue creating those flavors in a sustainable way so we've been excited to see that in the last couple of years and I hope that that continues next year too. Throw one more question, just a quick look back at the last uh, the last three years, particularly during COVID. You know, you all know so many distilleries and producers and people in the industry. Um, are there, at the risk of this being an in memoriam segment, are there um, distilleries, producers that have gone by the wayside in the last couple of years that you think people should still try to find a product of theirs or see if they're still available? I think one of the benefits of the PPP program is that there are way fewer craft distilleries have closed than we expected going into COVID. So I don't have anyone because I think everyone's kind of still trucking along for now. I think it'll be interesting as everyone gets back into the world and they're not sitting on their computers reading nerdy whiskey articles to see if less demand is there in the market because people go back to buying their mainstay because they've got a thousand other things going on in their lives. I wonder, like people aren't making cocktails at home. What I, it'll be interesting to see if we actually start seeing some closures because of that. I think that COVID actually didn't hit as hard as a lot of us expected going into it. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I, I echo what Nora said. Luckily, Luckily, at least nobody that I know personally has closed their distillery over the last couple of years, but I'll use this as an opportunity to just, you know, restate what I think is probably important for all of us on this call, which is that, you know, times have been tough the last few years, 
times will continue to be tough in the future for reasons that we don't know yet. It's really important to support small business. It's really important to support local business. And it's really important to support people that you that you understand the like why they're doing the things that they're doing and how they're doing the things that they're doing and and that that aligns with something that you believe in. Um, you know, Buffalo Trace is gonna be fine. Jim Bean is gonna be fine. Uh, but your your small local uh, small businesses, whether that be whiskey or whether that be something else, those are the people that need your help. Um, and especially coming out of the holiday season, uh, just a good you know thing to remember that uh, you know buy local, support local, um, support people in your community that are trying to do something cool and different. Chase and I talk all the time about um, you know in 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 the last two and a half years we've been interviewing craft whiskey distilleries. We've been telling these long form holistic stories on our website because we felt like most of what's out there is tasting notes or or a couple quick hits on on people. Nobody's really diving into the who or the why or the how. Um, and when you do, you learn that these are people that are, you know, mortgaging their house, they're emptying, emptying 401ks, they're taking out, you know, big small business loans, uh, all to enter into a, a field, especially with whiskey, where, um, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion that you're going to be a success. And and you're going to have to put up a lot of money up front while that whiskey sits in a barrel and ages. And, and even still, you know, it might take you a while to figure out how to make the best whiskey that you can make or how or for them to make the best whiskey that they can make. Um, you're doing it because they believe in it. They're doing it because they have a passion for it. And they're doing it because, um, because they don't want to just recreate every other whiskey that's already out there on the shelf. And that's a really... That's an important spirit to get behind, pardon the pun, uh, to get behind not just in whiskey, but just in general. And I think that that's a big part of what at least we all tell ourselves the American story and the American spirit is all about. So um, I don't know anybody who's froze, thank goodness. I think Nora brings up a good point about you know, like the government's not out there offering a lot more assistance and people are going back to work and people are leaving their houses again. And we gotta, you know, we can't just take our foot off the pedal. Uh, support local, support your community, support people that are out there doing things because it's what they're passionate about. And um, and I think that's, you know, the most important thing. Yeah, I, I'd say, I think that's a, 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 I won't let Devin get another mic drop on us. So that's, <laughs> it was very good and, and well put, but I think that is a good point about just you know, it's not, I'm not quite answering the question, but just supporting people I always have people like, Oh, well, what, what do you taste that you just hate? And is terrible. It's like, man, it's, somebody went through a lot to put this together while I might not love everything about it. You, you know, it, it always baffles me that it's like you put your, your life and everything into making a product. And then some random guy off the internet decides that it's terrible because, you know, he smoked a cigarette before he drank it and had a bad day and, you know, who knows what else. And <laughs> It's slightly uh, frustrating at times to see that, but, um, you know, I just continue to hope that everything grows within this industry. It's it's great to have, you know, whatever we're at, like 1,800 or 1,900 distilleries in the country right now. So I hope that can continues and, and we see more and more growth from there and we don't see that number decline. Um, thankfully, I, I think I only know of 
maybe a couple that closed during the pandemic time frame, but that was more of just, I think, just inevitable kind of life stuff. So um, hopefully that that's what we continue to see and, and, and it's not an overcrowded space by any means. I'll add just as a side note, I think there's something like 2,600 distilleries at this point. It's nuts. Ooh, so it's, it, it actually, it went down. I I think it, the ACSA update came out recently with a new count that was just staggering. So it's even more so to your point, like it's a huge, it's a huge crew. So we're we're getting really really close to the end of this, and I, I want to thank all of you guys for for being here. You know, when when Dave and I were kind of putting a list together, Devin dropped the grenade in our lap, but we were like, you know, what are we going to get? And we ended up coming up. We've got a list here of a blog that was turned a retailer and a blog that was turned into a blender, and then we've got a small distiller, and we've got. Um, the, the the retailer to independent bottler connection. I don't think that there is a more appropriate group of people to have this conversation about, you know, small holders, um, small distillers, craft, whatever the term you want to use um, to kind of describe it. But um, we would be incredibly remiss if we didn't give you an opportunity to plug <laughs> what it is you do, what it is you sell, the things that, that keep you alive. So maybe at the end of 2023, we can have this exact same conversation again, just with some new uh, conversation material. And so I'll let you guys kind of self-organize there, but um, just kind of give us the details on what we can buy, where we can buy it, how we can, how we can support you. I'll, I'll start off because we're the youngest. <laughs> um, so youngest goes first. Uh, uh, American National Grain, the website is Mash. N-A-S-H, the letter N, grain.com. Uh, every month, we uh, we feature a new craft whiskey distillery across the country. Uh, our articles are on the longer side, so I'm just preparing anybody listening to this to that uh, ahead of time because uh, we want to make sure that we're giving uh, full credit uh, to the stories of the people that are making the change out there in American whiskey. So if you really want to know about the backstory, the history, the process, the philosophy, the brand marketing strategy of craft whiskey uh, distilleries across the country. You can come to our website and check out the distilleries that we featured uh, and the distilleries that we'll continue to feature every single month. Uh, last August, we released our first ever product, which is Borrowed Page American Whiskey. I don't know if this is ever going to be somewhere where you can see it or whether it's just going to be a podcast, but here's my terrible attempt of having a blurred background and showing off the bottle here. Um, Bottle Page is a limited release whiskey that we're hoping to release a few times a year. Uh, this is our first ever release. Uh, like I said before, it's a blend of four different whiskeys, uh, bourbon from Watershed Distillery in Columbus, Ohio, a bourbon from Spirits of French Lick in West Baden, Indiana, a rye whiskey from Wibble Whiskey in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and a Mesquite Smokes uh, Single Malt from Whiskey Del Bac out in Tucson, Arizona. It is only available on our website. Like I said, only 724 bottles were made. We're uh, closing in on 50% through our inventory. And once this bottle is gone, we're never going to recreate it again. Volume two is going to be different distilleries, different styles of whiskey, as uh, we hope that this is an extension of our overall mission to elevate the profile of American craft whiskey. Hopefully you drink it. It's unique. It's different, something like you've never had before, but also makes you interested 
in the distilleries that were used to make it. And we have everybody's logo uh, right here on the front of the bottle. So you know exactly where this whiskey came from. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. We're available on social media, pretty much on all social media sites, at MASH, the letter N, grain. Chase, did I miss anything? Great, I'm getting a thumbs up from Chase for those of you who can't see uh, <laughs> this video progress. I guess I can go. We're going. We're going in age order, <laughs> youngest to oldest. I guess. Um, so, Lost Lantern Whiskey. Basically, we're an independent bottler in the Scotch model. Um, we buy mature casks of whiskey from distilleries all over the U.S. and we either blend them together, or we put them out as single casks um, with full transparency on where they come from. Um, we release seasonally. So spring 2023 is breathing down our necks right now. We have some fun stuff coming up, um, for that. And then this year is going to, 2023 is going to be fun for us. Um, we sell both through Sealbox and through our website. And we, between those two, we ship to 40 States, um, lostlanternwhiskey.com with an E, whiskey spelled with an E and we're Lost Lantern Whiskey everywhere else, Instagram, Facebook, all the fun things. That's us. I'll jump in because I don't know age, but I just want to be next as somewhere in the middle of youngest. But <laughs> now I'm Blake from Sealbox, uh, S E E L B A C H S. And like I said in the intro, you know, just uh online retailer focused on the best in craft spirits, blenders, distillers all that fun stuff. Um, a lot coming for 2023. So, you, you know, if you get a chance, join the email list, the text list. Uh, I, I, it will be a lot of emails and text, I promise, but you know, you, you can, you can mute them at times if you need to, but no, always something new, fun and exciting. So it's, it's been really cool just to, to see all the growth in this whole industry over the past few years and just excited where it's going and the stuff we're getting offered now is it just improves every year. So, so it's going to be an exciting 2023. So thank you so much for having me. There we go. We got an email already on the screen. <laughs> Actually, that would have been during the podcast, even, you know, we got a multitask. <laughs> so guys, thanks for having me. I, I saw that too, Blake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are queued up. We've gotten a little better, you know, it was like, Hey, let's be prepared a week in advance. I'm like, if if we get a day in advance, we're doing good. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, I'm Colin again with Kings County Distillery. We are 13 years old, um, got started in 2010. We make all different kinds of American whiskey because um, New York is the intersection of a lot of different cultures from around the world. We tend to use that sort of um, kind of global outlook on on within American whiskey. So we use uh, borrow a lot from Scotch tradition, but also um, even when we're talking about American whiskey, we borrow as much from moonshine as we do from aged bourbon. Um, uh, our most popular whiskeys are straight bourbon and peated bourbon. We have a sort of smoky, uh, almost Scotch style bourbon. Um, but we also make American single malt. We make an empire rye whiskey. Um, we make some flavored whiskeys that are pretty fun, a chocolate whiskey. Um, and we are also sold through Sealbox and through our own website. Um, and we're distributed in about 25 states in, with traditional distribution. So chances are um, mo most people in most states could just go to their local liquor store and ask for it, which is, which is a nice thing. Um, 
I have no idea what we're going to be doing in 2023, but I assume we will put out um, fine, fine whiskeys <laughs> and uh, are pulling from the largest inventory that we've ever had to pull from now, um, barrels all the way up to 10 years old this year. So that's exciting. Right. Well, uh, one with that. final thing that I just want to mention, uh, you know, first of all, I just want to thank everybody for being here. I kind of had this idea that it would be fun to have a craft, craft whiskey roundtable with some people out there that really understand what's going on in craft. And I couldn't think of, of two better podcast hosts than David and John to, to help steward this. So thanks everybody for being here, but also mostly thank you, John and David, for putting this thing together, for organizing it. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in American whiskey and with craft or with small producers. So uh, I do hope this is only the beginning of what becomes a longer conversation, but thank you guys all for, for putting this together. Absolutely. It was a blast to have you all on. And I would speak for John as well when he said this is what we love to do um, for both of us. It's a passion project and it's really something that yeah, like I said, we just love to do. Um, we will include in uh, show notes, however this comes out, links to everybody. This is going to be the longest show notes that I think either of us have ever put out. But it'll be links to everybody, uh, including where to buy, social media. Make sure uh, if you're listening and if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me, to John, uh, and uh, we'll get you some answers. So with that, I think we'll close out our Craft Whiskey Roundtable at the end of 2022. So thank you to, to John for being my co-host, to Blake, to Chase, Devin, Colin, Nora, in no particular order. And with that, y'all have a great day and drink some whiskey. Thanks for tuning in for this offering from the Embellished Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform you have to be consuming this on. Leave a comment if possible. Hit me up on social media at Twitter or Instagram using Embellish Pod. Uh, or give me a follow so you can keep up with what's going on here. Uh, I can be found at www.embellishpod.com with all of my links, accounts, and contact details. I'll be back again next week with another new offering for you. So until then, cheers and thanks for hanging out.